Hey, hi, and Happy New Year. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Orson Oblowitz, a photographer, writer, and director whose films include Trespassers, The Queen of Hollywood Boulevard, The Five Rules of Success, and now Showdown at the Grand, which stars Terrence Howard as a theater operator and movie lover whose refusal to sell his beautiful old picture house to developers sets him up for a world of hurt, and only Dolph Lundgren can save him. It's a love letter to 70s and 80s exploitation cinema, and also to the act of moviegoing. It's freshly arrived on disc and digital, and you should check it out. Orson picked Akira, manga artist Katsuhiro Otomo's 1988 adaptation of his own long-running comic series. Set in a rebuilt Tokyo 30 years after a global conflict that nearly ended the world, the film focuses on two bikers, Kaneda and Tetsuo, whose lives are changed forever by an encounter with a powerful psychic on the streets of Neo-Tokyo. With spectacular visuals, a complex storyline, and a tremendous sense of apocalyptic dread, Akira became a worldwide sensation, though not right away. It's a cult picture, which is exactly why Orson loves it. This is someone else's movie. I chose it because, A, it's a film that I've watched over and over my whole life, and I've always gone back to. And while I was making this film, I came back to it a lot. Um, I even have a poster of it back there, uh, the, the, the Mexican release of it. And I did it because, not only because I love the film, but I love how it's permeated through pop culture for so long. And that was a big part of why I picked it because it wasn't just about the film. It was about its lasting power and all the incisions and roads it's taken in the last 30 or so years. Yeah. I was kind of delighted when, um, <laughs> when, when Kiki Palmer does it in, uh, in Nope and it's like suddenly, Oh, that's the Akira slide. Look at that. But of course, Jordan Peele would remember that. You know, like, of course he would just see the opportunity, but looking back at it, through culture, it is hard to reconcile what it was, how it was treated initially with what it's become. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough that I saw the first press screening wow. uh, when it was going to open in Canada on a 35 millimeter print in a dingy screening room underneath what's now a pottery barn in Toronto, which is incredibly disappointing, but what used to be one of the, the most beautiful theater theaters we ever had. Um, and people, I was mildly aware of it, of of anime as a concept and and the manga as a as a as a, a cultural force, but there were people crabbing in the in the screening about why they had to come see a cartoon. And now that animation is a legitimate genre, and that we've all we've gotten past all of those arguments, Akira, you look back and it's just like, oh yeah, it's all there. Like it's it's not the signpost; it's the Rosetta Stone. Absolutely, and I think. You know, you brought note, and I think, and then even Creed three recently, mm -hmm. uh, Michael B. Jordan referenced a lot of Akira, and even in interviews with him, and and anime as a whole. And I know I read some early, you know, went back and read some kind of early reviews where it got a little kind of, you know, slammed as being, oh, it didn't make sense, and it's kind of infantile, and all of these things. And I think for me, uh, animated film has been a really amazing gateway to a, a gateway art form for me into a whole new world. And I think when I approached films myself, I want them to feel like an anime sometimes, because I think there's a certain kind of a emotional emotionality that you get from an anime that you, 
that you can't almost reach with with uh, in in the kind of like in realism or, or or in live action. Well, people don't seem to know how to do it. People don't seem to understand how to pitch it to an audience in a way that makes sense. Uh, and so everyone seems to be afraid to try. But but yeah, what Jordan does in Creed Three is just like flagrantly use the language of anime uh, in live action or or stylized live action and allow for it. Or you know Edgar Wright doing Scott Pilgrim and just allowing things to be just a little cartoony with flesh and blood people and not care, right? Like if it's the aesthetic of the film, then the audience will figure it out. And Akira, yeah, Infantile was was something like it was really bizarre that people would at the time we're arguing that, well, if this thing is for children, it's very graphic. And it's like, that's not what this is. That's, that's, that's a complete, it's not just a misreading of the, of the thing. It's an insistence that the thing be the thing that you want it to be rather than what it is. Like as a, as a critic, I always tried to meet movies on their own terms, the same way Ebert used to write about, you know, is it five stars for a horror movie? Does that mean it's one of the best movies ever? No, it means it's five stars for a horror movie. It means that within its chosen genre, it's excelling. And what Otomo does in Akira is make a big budget action movie with pen and ink and just not care if <laughs> the audience isn't ready for it because he's pushing the edge and that's what happens. The audience won't be ready for it. Some of it won't, some of them won't be ready for it. But then eventually something this, this visionary, you can't be visionary enough when you're the first person to see something, right? Like, does that make any sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I mean, it's still, you know, the funny thing is still since Akira, there's only a handful full of kind of anime films that have permeated through pop culture in that way. I mean, Akira, mm -hmm. Ghost in the Shell, you know, and then kind of the Satoshi Kon, uh, you know, uh, the filmography and not all of them, just a few, but it's kind of it, you know, but it's so interesting to me that people would, and I guess it's an argument I've been having in, in general with kind of my peers sometimes as like, can that animation should be taken seriously as a mm. film, especially 2D animation. I think we saw it with Guillermo del Toro and Pinocchio and obviously Tim Burton's push stop motion and all of this time. But, but I think 2D animation is just an amazing art form that, when you watch what what Otomo did, and I was reading, I just did some like kind of reading on it last night. It was seven hundred and eighty pages of storyboards that he had drawn, so, and they were meticulous. I have this book, Anime Architecture. I mean, it's like it, 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 it's mind blowing because someone like me who like works in the complete opposite fashion, which is like I try to just like harness chaos and like hope it comes out okay. Like I watch it and I'm in awe of it, and. um and also, you know, him taking on such a a uh, big subject matter as 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 the atomic bomb in, in in the city destruction of a city in Japan, you know, forty years later is 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 a pretty amazing. It, it, I don't think people understand the gravity of that when you, uh, us in the West compared to what he was doing. Yeah, I mean, what Grave of the Fireflies was just a few years earlier, and those are the only two films that that made it out of Japan that dealt with this stuff. So we think it's a fairly rare occurrence, right? Like the in the West, but Godzilla, all of it, like the the culture has been grappling with the legacy uh, of the bomb and why the bomb was dropped, which never quite comes up in most of the genre stuff. The the sense of cultural not responsibility exactly, but complicity. The the sense that that the bomb was punishment for something. That's 
more a Godzilla deal than the than what anime does with it, I think. And Grave of the Fireflies is about the perspective of innocence, so you can't really get into it there. They don't know what's going on around them. But there is this larger morality, this other thing that's happening. And in Akira, it's all folded under the umbrella of science gone wild, science gone mad, people interfering with things. But the kids at the center of it are ultimately innocence, right? Like the the <laughs> this poor kid, the thing that happens, none of it is um, none of it is invited, none of it is is bargained for. It's ultimately, and the thing that this is the thing that keeps me coming back to Akira as a concept is the tragedy of it all. The fact that Akira, the title, doesn't even mean anything to these two kids who are Tetsu and Kaneda who get involved in this thing just because they were out racing their bikes and and society sort of steered them into this. The way things are forces them into this position. But it is ultimately like a love story and a tragedy that just has all this other stuff going on around it that becomes um, stylistically influential on, on a level that no one could have predicted. But you can always plug into it for the story, for the friendship, for the kids. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is like through kind of Japanese cinema, kind of in the post World War II, you see that a lot. Like Godspeed, you uh, you know, uh, was it um, was Godspeed, uh, the movie about the biker gangs in in Japan, and um, and uh, you know, and like Shinya Sukamoto's work, which is started around the same time, mm-hmm. they were kind of grappling as like these kids versus the power, the kind of like uh, intense regime, and versus science. And, you know, especially Shunya Sukamoto's work, you see that a lot with Bullet Man and, and, and all that type. And I, that's what I got when rewatching this movie yesterday, Akira, was the ending was so powerful to me when they just go through the montage of their friendship and where they met and how they came together. And that's what I mean. Like that emotional core is so it was, it, it permeated me with when I was a kid when I first saw it, when I first read, you know, I, I haven't read the whole manga, but as much as the manga as I had read, I read when I was younger. And then we were watching the film. That relationship is is actually quite beautiful, as mm-hmm. because we, it's like adulthood takes away that kind of innocence of our friendships, you know. And in this case, the adults and these kind of scientists gone wild take it away from them. Yeah, you know? violently. Yeah, absolutely. In a very intense way, it turns. They're they're kind of teenage angst into a, a weapon, an uncontrollable weapon, which you know I think is 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 interesting because I think you know maybe in our own way we're dealing with that in with younger kids in relationship to social media and relationship to things today where there's kind of this like teenage innocence being lost very early because everyone's so plugged in and connected and be one with the machine as he kind of as as tetsuo becomes which is ultimately his demise yeah well well, the the natural not exaggeration but the hyper intensity of teenagehood lends itself to it right like the you you mistake rage for passion or you mistake um uh a love of something for an identity. And I mean, even the uh, the punks who show up very briefly in Shodan at the Grand are just sort of, you know, punks from a different age. That's not what, that's not, they're, they're, they're styling themselves after something they've seen in the past. They're not actually organically part of a movement. They're the only two punks in the world as far as the film is concerned. Absolutely. That's, yeah. It's like cosplay. 
And, and now you can pretend to be a culture warrior long before you actually understand what the culture is. And all of this, like, Goes, I mean, it goes back to Rebel Without a Cause in the 50s. It goes back to the marijuana movies of the 30s where, where you know, it's always the youth that are going to be the problem. And Akira, the movie, just shows us that the youth are directionless. They're like they're just youth. They don't have personalities yet. They, they know what they like and they like each other and they're friends. And that's the only thing that really matters. And then, yeah, the world crash. Well, they literally, like Tetsuo literally crashes into the world and gets infected by it. And... The rest of the film is the is the thing is the disaster the path that he's put on by that uh, by that bad luck. That's interesting. You brought up the punks because like they in in showdown like they're they are to me like they are supposed to be like a punk that came out of another film another movie that almost you know it was like like they almost ended up there because you know they were from like suburbia or one of those uh, uh one of those movies you know like right, right. um they're, they're not like you know the real like we're not going for hyper realism and I think you see that in these films, like no one's saying, and I think it, what I, what I, what I'm almost jealous of in an anime is just by the nature of it being hand-drawn and, and, and all this, you don't have to explain any of it. You just can kind of rock and roll with it. And if you are an audience member that's interested in it, you're going to go on the ride. You're not going to question, you know, and they have the clowns, right? The other gang. And, and right. it's like, you're not like, Oh, the clowns aren't like a real street gang. You're just like, that's what it is, you know, and they're riding these motorcycles like those are their motorcycles. You're not wondering, you know, what, what's their license? Where's their parents? What happens when they get home? You kind of can lose all of that. And um, I think kind of there's, you know, in this current, uh, there's a lot of push for kind of like hyper real uh, hyper realism kind of in the last uh, decade of film. Uh, rightfully so. I think we we expect films to be a, an, a reflection of reality of our reality and not necessarily as a, a fantastical world. And that's what I really enjoy about it. And, and I think that's why, you know, I mean, go try to buy a vintage Akira shirt right now online, pay a thousand dollars. There's a reason for that. Yeah. It's nuts. I, uh, I was recently shocked to be reminded that Criterion released Akira on Laserdisc uh, way back when, like 1992, and got a lot of shit for it, that that it was considered, you know, out, it was pandering at the time. I mean, this is, you know, they, I think they'd already released, no, no, they wouldn't have, because The Rock uh, was still down in the future, and then the Michael Bay collaborations and all the big deal stuff that they would do that they got mocked for, even though, like, those are the things that fund the the guitar restorations and the, and all the other tiny little films that they've rescued from oblivion and put out the the sense that akira being released on laserdisc was a was a bridge too far it's like it's laserdisc you're not offending anybody this is just and it was an acknowledgement that this was the year after the english dub had been released so four years after the film's release in japan um the idea that they were finally acknowledging animation or contemporary uh anime storytelling as a legitimate form that, that just seemed inevitable really yeah, and I think now we—I mean—that's really interesting to hear because I, I didn't—I I didn't know that, and I didn't know that there was like such controversy over it. But it's so funny because now, you know, you wouldn't think twice about like an amazing Blu-ray, you know, Blu-ray release of something like Akira and mm -hmm. that nature. And even like that's funny that, that did the Criterion really do The Rock as a laser disc? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's this whole thing about how. David Fincher got them to release seven and Michael Bay saw that supposedly and just said, well, I want that for the rock, make it happen. And that's the reason Disney has a relationship with Criterion almost 30 years later. 
Well, I'm I'm a Michael Bay fan, to be honest, by by nature. I mean, I, I think he's as much as an auteur, auteur as Godard, and that's why Godard put him in um they put one of the clips, what was the great film he did a few years ago, Godard, where he cut up all the movies over uh all the movies over time. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, he wasn't was film socialism. I can never remember the title. No, it was after. It was the one after yeah. film socialism. Yeah, and, and he got. He even got. They gave Godard shit for putting in Michael Bay, and I was like, dude, he. Of course, he put in Michael Bay. Michael Bay has a stamp. That's what he's been about his whole life. You know, have a stamp, and like you know, and that's really interesting though because you even see it now. There's always kind of these little backlash in the film community to um, these, you know, films that are considered uh, subpar, maybe intellectually getting uh these releases and obviously you know i i have a i have a very big soft spot for those movies because again there's a reason why they permeate through pop culture and live these long lives you know like akira Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on shiny things my newsletter about physical media culture and the odd streaming project Last week, I made my lists of the best movies and discs of 2023 and dropped into the Vinegar Syndrome brick-and-mortar store in Toronto to reconnect with the joys of an old-school video shop. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Blue Sky account. You like reading about movies. I still like writing about them. Come check it out. I mean, you could say it's termite art. You could say it's counterculture. There's every generation comes up with a new term for it. Um, now, I guess it's just stuff that film dudes like, whatever that means. But it changes all the time. And it it's always the same thing, right? Which is just something that not everyone understood at the moment. Or in something that people continue to reject, maybe even now. Less so with Akira than, say, Transformers 3. But the... Um, the, the sensibility, well, yeah, this actually pulls me back to the question I forgot to ask at the very beginning, which was, when did you first see Akira? You're not quite old enough to have seen the theatrical release. Well, I just want to say, you just said Terminator. I love Manny Farber. I've been, yeah, I, his paintings and his work have been, his writings are like, I, I just, just, I love, that's amazing. <laughs> I haven't heard anyone else say that. Um, oh, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, I actually had the graphic, not the, the manga when I was a kid. Okay. I think dad had it like randomly because they, they, they just like collected anything they could that was kind of out and i remember reading it and then um i remember seeing it in the 90s on vhs and i'm trying to think i remember very clearly the first time i saw it and i can't remember if it was my mom rented it for me or i had just seen it and thought it looked cool because i had the graphic novel but yeah, I saw a VHS of it, and then it was a film that I can I came back to multiple times throughout my life, and I would never finish it. I know this is crazy. Like after the first time, it was like something I would turn on and never finish and never finish. Huh. And I would watch it in these kind of pieces, and it would seep into my life. I don't know why. I just like, and then during lockdown, I watched it maybe four or five times to kind of come back to it. But yeah, it was in the maybe the 96, 97 when I first saw it. So I was about 10 or 11. And yeah, I think my mom, I just thought it was cool. And I remember having the, seeing the VHS box and, you know, and I think that was kind of one of the things I loved about the video store was like, you kind of go in and you saw something that looked cool and you were like, mom, can I get this? And then, you know, it permeated, but it was actually the manga. And I still have the Akira manga somewhere here from when I was a kid that I, um, 
that was the first entryway into it actually was just like looking at these pictures and being like, this is amazing. I think it was the the biker boy story. I, I can't remember the name of the exact story. It was like about, it was about the kids, the, the, the you know. Yeah. Well, which makes total sense, right? Because you identify with the kids the, as, as a, as a kid yourself. And the, I always wondered too, how many people found it just because it was a cartoon and that made it okay for the parents to bring it home. Like there, there's that age gap where when it did show up, it just, well, it just looks like an angry kid on a cover of a box. It's, Probably not that bad. How bad could it be? It's not like, what was the other one that was happening right around the same time? Oh yeah, Legend of the Overfiend, which was the the full-on pornographic manga. I think it played, it either played at, at TIFF or some other festival, but I saw it at the Bloor Cinema uh, on a late night screening. I think it must have been one of the early Midnight Madnesses. And it's just a full-on tentacle rape kind of monster movie and animated. And um and that was the thing that caught all the flack at the time because someone tried to release it theatrically. That and and Akira was sort of the easier sell. So Akira got out on video faster. Akira got into the culture faster, and and people discovered it. Whereas Overfiend and, and what was that? There's another one I can't remember. Oh, X. It was kind of the Akira Light, which is about demigods and monsters fighting in in blocked off sections of the world. It was very slowly paced and not that interesting. Whereas Akira, for you know. It may be a cartoon, but it moves. It moves like a Lethal Weapon movie. You know what? I just had the exact memory of what I okay. So I remember my mom. We we were. I had I had read the comic, and I was like, I I know there's a film of this. I have the exact memory. There was a store. I grew up in New York City, mm-hmm. in uh, so in Broadway Lafayette at the time. That was like a manga anime store, and I went there, and we bought Akira. I remember the VHS of Akira, Fist of the North Star, and Ninja Scroll. And I got all three of those and they changed my life um, in many ways. And that, that those, and I still revisit all three of those a lot, actually, especially Ninja Scroll, um, because it's one of my favorite. And that was the exact moment. Now I remember it. It was weird. It just sparked this crazy little memory for me. Yeah. So maybe like 97. Yeah. 97, 98. Yeah. So. Just one more thing that's gone. I did. We, we won't ever fully understand the, the importance of stores, physical brick and mortar culture stores like that, that, that are all just obliterated now. Like if you're lucky, if you're in a city large enough to support one, then that's where you go to get recommendations and discover things. And, and instead of just endless news groups and, and, you know, social media references of stuff that you sort of maybe get to track down, but the experience of discovering something because someone else talked to you enthusiastically about it, that's just, God, it's such a it's it's such a lost art, which actually lets me bring in Shodan at the Grand, because that is all about that. The 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 idea of gathering at a temple for culture, for for a movie theater that holds the mysteries of the past and shows you what the future could be and, and all the stuff that's flying around inside the walls of your movie. Um there's room for Akira in there too. I mean, obviously somebody's fixation on a motorcycle is part of it, but you also have a sidekick named Spike straight out of um, Cowboy Bebop, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. And and all these other pieces that are that are floating around. And, and I hesitate to invoke anything for the, the audience because I don't want to ruin anything, but there is a moment where John Savage just throws away a line from Heat about how there's stuff in the air and you just have to know how to grab it. And I was just so happy in that moment. It's just like, oh, I get that. That's wonderful. But it also doesn't matter if I get it, right? Like it's a reference that's been incorporated into the fabric where it works in the moment, regardless. You're not stopping the film dead to trade dialogue. 
No, that that that's that's amazing you say that because like what you even the segue in was like those places, those kind of institutions. And again, lucky enough that I got to grow up in a city that really had those a, a city I was back last weekend that does not have them anymore, by the way. Yeah. Um, those places gave me in the most depressed, sad, lost times of youth and even adulthood. Those places gave me uh, a home and a, and, a, and a path forward and and a kind of like a North Star. And that is why I wrote this film. That is why I made it is because like that type that that those gathering centers is where I met some of my favorite people. It's where I had a conversation with someone I'd never meet again that changed my life. It, it was where I found uh, art that that still lives. I turn to all the time just to kind of feel comfortable mm-hmm. uh, and to learn about new things. And like that's what the movie was about. And yes taking all the incorporating those lines of dialogue like from heat or apocalypse now or or or, or, or these films or dune and, and these things i i i wanted them to kind of feel a little bit how they make me feel when i hear them you know how they've lived with me over in my memory um over over my life and I wanted to say this is important. This is this is important stuff. It might not be important to you, but it's really important to some of us. And yeah, and I love that when Savage you got that line because obviously I love Heat. Heat is one of those films that I I constantly revisit all the time. Um, you know, I I I, I probably I, when I made my first movie, Queen Valley Boulevard, I watched I put on Heat every night for two months. It was kind of psycho. My girlfriend at the time was like, I'm I literally sleeping, like maybe sleep on the couch because she didn't want to hear eat gunshots going to bed. <laughs> but um yeah, I mean, I, I think I think pop, you know, these type of pop culture and, and cinema and these art forms, they're, they're 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 real art. They're not, they're not, you know, lesser art because of what they the, what their content is and again just as as your film proves they don't have to be for everybody same for akira like there are people who will just never watch it because it's a cartoon the same play the same way people won't watch movies that have subtitles and you know bon joon ho beautifully summing it all up with the one inch barrier that people refuse to read a movie it's like you're already using your eyes to watch it never mind but the 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 sense of specificity um being exclusionary that's not a thing in Showdown at the Grand. That's the thing that I really appreciate about it is that you could make a film, and I've seen a few that are just wallowing in their references and don't care about telling an original story or inviting people in. And what you've done is you've used a structure that is instantly familiar. You know, like people constantly saying, well, this guy thinks he's in a Western because he wears a hat, but he also has a sword. So he's from this world as well. And there are all these other pieces flying around. It's a fully cohesive world that you've created where all of these separate little narratives can exist and bounce off of each other. And it's still recognizably real, quote unquote, real world stuff that because it's, you know, your movie's about not to give too much away, but it's about gentrification and it's about the push to remake the world in someone else's image that isn't necessarily what anybody wants. There's that great line that Terrence Howard has, and I promise this is the last time I will quote the film, uh, where somebody says, you know, like, we're just um, we're just trying to bring the world forward and say, well, what if we don't need it? What if we don't need progress? What if we don't need change? I work for a movie theater that has 35 millimeter projectors, and it's still one of the nicest physical sensations to sort of reconnect to that place where 
the sound of the sprockets or the, the judder of the image was was part of the experience and you could be comforted by it. I mean, I grew up in a, my, my grandfather owned a movie theater when I was a kid. I grew up in a projection booth and that is my Prestian Madeline, uh, basically. So yeah, any film that celebrates the tactility of the experience and the idea that we all gather to experience this thing together, there's just, yeah, there's nothing like it. No, not at all. I mean, seeing a film print, the more like weathered and kind of generous second, third, whatever generation of it, like, I love it. I think it gives me, it allows me to connect to it in a way that it's real. It's in front of me. It's like a painting, you know, mm. it's the same way that like when I go to a a, a gallery, I, 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 I'm like looking at the side of the painting to see how much paint is like off the canvas. Is it oil? Is it acrylic? You know, what is it? What are we dealing with here? And like, I think that we get to see that when we're watching something projected and with digital restoration. Yes. I think it's great that so many films that I, you know, had to find bootlegs of when I was a kid or whatever are coming to life. But I'm telling you, I can't stand how they look. I am. I, I find it really, really hard to lose myself sometimes because the, the fog, the yellow, the, the scratches, all of that, like that's part of, what's amazing you're seeing is the degradation of the print and um and that we when you go see you know if i watch chud on the on my on my tv screen i'm probably not going to make it all the way through tonight if i do it i go to a theater i make it a focus thing i'm going to go watch it i'm going to it's going to you're going to hear everyone laughing and making noises and have that kind of communal experience you're going to remember it forever Mm. and i you know and that's amazing that you grew up in a movie theater. I mean, I find that, I mean, obviously that's like kind of what, you know, this movie's about. And we had the, the, um, the, like the, you know, this guy, uh, Brett, Brett, the, 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 the projectionist was hanging out with us the whole time. And he was just this character who like lived in the back of the truck and went from movie theater to the movie theater across the country projecting films. They would bring him in because, you know, there's only, there's not many projectionists left. That's also a lost art form that, you know, for a long time was, um, uh, you know, considered kind of like the last gateway for, of, of, of between the film, the filmmaker and the audience was like, okay, projectionist, like, don't mess that up. This is how many lumens and foot candles this needs to be. Make sure the sounds at this DB and like, you know, we're in this together. Yeah. Yeah, we absolutely are. It's, um, and what you say about the commitment of time, for focus for a film to come and see it in the theater. I've never really considered it that way, weirdly enough. But yes, of course, now, especially where everything's at our, you know, theoretically at our fingertips, it is like a, it's almost a noble gesture to leave your house for anything, but to to gather and see, you know, we had 200 people for Chad. It was a good night. That's, but that's, that's amazing. And I think people, I think the film industry and I think society underestimates that, that, that experience. I mean, I, we just had Beyond Fest in LA recently mm-hmm. and like, I would drive, uh, you know, by the Arrow or somewhere. I mean, there was lines around the block. There was a, a bigger, as big a line as that to see, you know, the Rolling Stones, like, you know, to see a, a relative. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and these are really important to the community and to film. And, it, and it's been that for a long time. And that's why in the movie, I tried to make also the the, the comparison between kind of like the medium and the mode of viewing as being very close to each other. 
and then constantly trying to be corporatized over time, right? Like there's always been this kind of race of like the Edisons versus the Lumieres, you know, the kind of like the 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 the, the entrepreneurs versus the artists, the, the kind of more um, you know, people who 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 see kind of more of a cultural or artistic uh integrity in it, versus people who are like, I can sell more stuff. Right. Yeah. The show and the business. Yeah, but they go together. You can't have it without it. I just think now we're kind of in a time where we have to come to terms with what do we want? You know, is more better or do we want to like spend our time in a focused place and keep these cultural institutions alive? Because I personally like, I remember when Amoeba moved, I lived in Hollywood forever. When it moved, I left Hollywood. I was like, okay, this is a really good time for me to get out of here and move. Like I moved kind of to the like a little like country place. Cause I was like, you know, that these institutions, I'm so happy it's still there, but, and they, they made it, you know, into its new form, but you know, we just, the, 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 and then that's when I wrote this film was in lockdown when the theater started closing. And I think we're just, we're really at a time where we have to make a decision as a society, what's important to us, you know, and not let the corporations make the decision for us. Nicely put. Um, this is like the jumping off point for almost a million other things and a million other conversations, all of which are bound up in your movie. But I get to ask, um, just because we started out talking about Akira, uh, is there anything from Akira that you directly pulled into Shodan at the Grand? I mean, I know the motorcycle is feels like a reference, but is there anything else? Is there something specific? Well, the, the motorcycle was was 100% a reference. There's no direct ones beyond that. Um, it was more of a feeling. Of a kind, and also like a journey of one person starting somewhere so far away, ending up something so completely different. And I did see Terrence as an anime character in the mm-hmm. end when he shows up with the sword and the western. Um, it, it was actually more Cowboy Bebop probably than Akira. If you, you hit the nail on the head of that kind of like jazz space western, I kind of saw it as this like sci-fi. Uh, adventure in its own way. So I think that's what I was trying to harness was more that feeling that you get at the end of Akira, where suddenly you're in this completely fantastical world. There's lasers flying, explosions, and all this, but you're completely emotional. And I'm hoping that we stuck that a little bit with the end with this movie. I I I I I'm I haven't really seen it with a full audience yet, so I'm not sure to be honest. So because my feelings and my friends and my peers' feelings are much different, but no, there wasn't any just like and the motorcycle was like I wanted. I've always since I've seen since I was a kid, I wanted to shoot something with a cool motorcycle like that. But that was also demons as well. It was it was that, and then and then when I looked at the demons, they had a month to shoot their motorcycle. Uh, attack of the theater and i had half a day so (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot different i mean i think they'll love it i think it's a it's the kind of film that invites people in rather than pushes them away with its with its wall of knowledge like you you the whole point is that you know you've opened the doors to the cinema and anybody can come inside that's awesome. Yeah, because I wouldn't be able to the end to be like, like I put a little thing of references at the end of the movie. Uh, I, I, if anyone ever makes it to the end credits of the, the end of it, there's like a little thing of references and I kind of did it fast. So I'm sure there's more I missed. But I tried to just be like, not as a footnote, but as like, hey, like there's a lot of weird stuff in here. But like people have been making so much fun stuff that we're yet that so many people are yet to see that have given me so much freaking joy in my life that like and comfort. 
And yeah, no, that's nice if it's entry because I didn't want to make something that was that felt um, entitled, like felt that like we were like, I was like, I know something you don't. Yeah. Yeah. You it's know? gatekeeper cinema. We have enough of that. Yeah, I have no desire to do that. I I I I I love you know I, I love watching you know and to be honest, the film that brought that that was the first impetus for me making this was Goodbye Dragon Inn. Sure, yeah, I can Taiwanese see that. movie, yeah, yeah, which you know you some people could solve kind of is a very alienating movie maybe to some people, but you know um, I loved it, but I didn't want to make that. I wanted to make Goodbye Dragon Inn for Dolph Lundgren fans. My thanks to Orson Oblowitz, whose new film, Showdown at the Grand, is now available on disc and digital across North America from Shout Studios. Thanks also to Tom Chen. He knows what he did. You can follow Orson on Instagram at Orson Manchild, all one word, and you can find Akira on 4K and Blu-ray from Funimation Entertainment and streaming on Crunchyroll in the U.S. and Canada. It's also available on Hulu. You can find me on Blue Sky at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhep.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get the new booster when you can. I'll see you next week.